I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, first of all, to John chapter 5. Our passage is going to be from Luke 24, but I've been using the last number of weeks a different background passages that prepare us perhaps to, to learn a little bit more, to dig a little deeper. And so I want to start with John chapter 5 this morning as that it kind of sets us up for that we hear Jesus talking about something he's going to talk about with his disciples as he appears to them after the resurrection. But John has recorded that he's already starting to talk about it in his life on earth. John's an interesting gospel. Oftentimes evangelists like to use this gospel because the other gospels sort of help us follow the disciples along as they discover Jesus and who he is. But John sort of lays it out right from the beginning who Jesus is. And uh, there's no mistaking who John tells us Jesus is, and we hear it in some of these conversations. Jesus is having a conversation in John 5 with the religious leaders who are questioning his uh, healing on the Sabbath and, and other things that he's doing and, uh, and saying, who, who are you? And Jesus is responding, but, but then he realizes that, you know, it's not really valid to just testify about yourself. And so he talks about the test, some of the testimonies uh, about Jesus in verses 31 to 47. So it's John 5, verses 31 to 47. Listen to some of these testimonies about Jesus. He says, If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the very work that the Father has given me to finish, which I am doing, testifies that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice or seen his form, Nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept praise from men, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you'll accept him. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you don't believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say. So Jesus says, you know, I don't even have to talk about myself. You got John the Baptist testifying to who I am. The Father himself has testified to who I am. But you know what? You have the scriptures. You know those scriptures you guys are experts in? You have the scriptures and they testify about me. And particularly Moses, the, the first five books of the Bible, testifies about me. You have all of that and yet you don't believe. So Jesus is already talking about the role of the Scripture, the Old Testament, and testifying to him. And now we want to go to, uh, after Easter, to Luke chapter 24, beginning at verse 36. 
Luke 24, verse 36, as we look at now another post-resurrection appearance of Jesus on the other side of Easter, we, we looked at the previous passage two weeks ago, the Cleopas and the other disciple heading to the road to Emmaus, and Jesus joins them and has a conversation with them, and in the midst, he talks to them from the Old Testament Scriptures about what was supposed to happen and who he was. And then they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us? Will he talk with us on the road and open the Scriptures to us? So they talk about this revelation that comes from Jesus' spiritual heartburn. Then last week, we, we went over to the Gospel of John and looked at two appearances of Jesus. First to his disciples uh, as a whole, minus Thomas, and then one with Thomas in the room. And John seems to be focused more on the Thomas story. So now we're coming back to Luke, and we're going back to that original scene. The disciples are gathered in the upper room on Easter Sunday because Luke gives us a little bit more detail about that, and particularly about how on the other side of Easter is understanding. So let's pick that up at Luke 24, verse 36. While they were still talking about this, so the conversation was, hey, Jesus appeared to us on the road to Emmaus. Hey, we heard he appeared to Simon Peter too. And they're talking about this, and while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It's I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet, and while they still didn't believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. That was the promise that we read a little bit earlier, that he promised the Holy Spirit. But stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. We'll conclude our reading at that point this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Holy Spirit, as you came and and empowered the disciples, empowered the church, ultimately empowered us, beginning in Pentecost, we know that, that it wasn't the case that you were missing from, from earlier times, we're reminded that, in fact, it was the very scriptures that speak of Jesus that were inspired by you, that you took, took men and, and wrote the scriptures through them and gave them the right words to speak, all pointing to Jesus. So now, now Holy Spirit, we pray that you would take those same scriptures and help us to understand Jesus better in his role in our lives by your inspiration. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The musical Godspell, which was based on the Gospel of Mark, portrays Jesus' disciples as clowns with their bumbling attempts to live like Jesus, their 
their foot and mouth disease, especially Peter, and their general misunderstanding of who Jesus was and what this was all about. Some Christians were upset with this characterization when God's spell came out, preferring to see the disciples as saints. But although they acted more saintly later in life, I happen to think the characterization is fitting, maybe even helpful. Frederick Buechner writes about them, there's no evidence that Jesus chose them because they were brighter or nicer than other people. In fact, the New Testament record suggests they were continually missing the point, jockeying for position, and when the chips were down, interested in nothing so much as saving their own skins. Their sole qualification seems to have been their initial willingness to rise to their feet when Jesus said, follow me. As St. Paul later put it, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Yeah, when Jesus was in them, there was with them, certainly they were clown-like, especially in their lack of understanding. Am I being too harsh? I say that knowing that every one of us, myself included, would have done no better, maybe even worse. But what a difference a day makes. Easter Sunday, that is. As we've already seen, on the other side of Easter is is spiritual heartburn at God's presence. On the other side of Easter is the transformation of our lives as, as Jesus confronts us with the reality of his resurrection. But another important thing on the other side of Easter is understanding. And that's what I'm going to look at for a few moments this morning. Now, the first understanding that they had to come to was that Jesus was living. We've already seen it on the road to Emmaus and with Thomas, but now we look at it with the disciples as a whole. While they were still talking about this, Jesus stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Jesus' password, as he often entered their presence, was, Peace be with you. In fact, that's kind of a common statement. Whenever God shows up, whenever an angel, a messenger of the Lord shows up, peace be with you, often accompanied by, don't be afraid. And we can see why. The disciples were more than a little confused. After all, Jesus had taught them with divine authority. He had talked about God's kingdom. They had even confessed him as the Messiah and the Son of God. But then he died. Now he's risen from death, although up to this point the majority hadn't seen him. And they're questioning, what's this all about? So here's this little group huddled in the upper room behind closed and locked doors, afraid for their lives. Perhaps the greatest need at this moment was some peace in their lives. So Jesus offers his peace. But then he also offers his proof. They were startled and frightened, thinking they had seen a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It's I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Jesus' words didn't seem to make a lot of impact. They were too freaked out by his appearance in a locked room. They they feared he was a ghost. 
Now, this is interesting because Luke indicates here that it was not just Thomas who had doubts, that this was, in fact, a common characteristic of all the disciples. So Jesus gives them proof. He talks with them, especially about their doubts. He shows them his nail-scarred hands and feet. He allows them to touch and see. He even eats a piece of fish for them. Why did Jesus do this all? Why, why did he speak his peace? Why did he give his proof? Well, it was in order to offer his presence with them without their needing to be afraid. He's going to keep showing up. A presence that would keep lasting for 40 days and then even after he ascended into heaven. And so he wants them to have a sense of peace when he comes. You know, sometimes God invades our lives like a ghost materializing in a locked room. He, God comes and he moves us to do something or to not do something and he calls us beyond our comfort zones and sometimes it feels a little eerie. God sometimes allows a tragedy we'd rather not face. An obstacle we'd rather not hurdle. But as he does this, as he comes into our lives, we need to be reminded, as the disciples were, that he comes in peace. He comes for our peace. He doesn't come to torment us, to spoil our fun, to make life hard. And if we're willing to investigate through prayer, listening, watching, he'll prove it's really him. But most of all, God does it to offer his presence to us, to remind us that he's alive, that he's not some distant deity, but is our friend, that he loves us and wants to be near us and wants us to be near him. Well, once they understand he's alive, then they and, and we can begin to understand Jesus' life. Now, being time-oriented creatures, Jesus reveals to us and, and to his disciples a new understanding through a timeline of sorts. He, he talks here in terms of past, present, and future. First, the past. Look at verses 44 and 45. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the Scriptures. This is what I told you till I was blue in the face, says Jesus, revealing what the Old Testament said about him. The Old Testament, the law and the prophets and the Psalms, that was the Jewish Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. In fact, if, if you have any Jewish friends at all and they ever talk about their Bible, they might call it by a rather strange name to us, Tanakh. Tanakh is the Hebrew Scriptures, and it simply is an acronym, the consonants, for the three sections of the Hebrew Scriptures. The, the T stands for Torah, the first five books of the Bible. The N for Nevi'im, the prophets, starting with Joshua and the former prophets, all the way through the major and minor prophets of the Old Testament. And then the K is for Ketuvim, or writings, and usually in the New Testament it's just shorthand. They use Psalms, although there are other writings as well of uh, of Ecclesiastes and, and Proverbs and the like. 
But that's the Jewish Old Testament. That's the, the Old Testament. That's the Jewish or the Hebrew Scriptures. That was Jesus' Bible. And so Jesus wants to show them how all of that pointed to him. Jesus gives them the key. Tonight we're going to talk about the keys of the kingdom, but he gives us here a key to the Scriptures. And for the first time, they understand that the whole Old Testament, the whole Scriptures that they held as their Bible, points to him. All of the Old Testament points to him. This is why we take so seriously the Old Testament. Not only was it Jesus' Bible, but it's about Jesus. The Old Testament is about Jesus. It prepares us for Jesus. You know, in children's magazines, you can often find an activity page called Find the Hidden Pictures. In an elaborately drawn picture, there are, there are many pictures hidden throughout to be discovered by children. The Old Testament is in many ways a find the hidden pictures of Jesus. And the more you look, the more you find. In fact, that's what Jesus was saying back in John 5, which we read earlier, to the religious leaders. All you have to do is look at the Scriptures intently, listen to Moses, and if you do it with open ears and and an open heart, you'll find out that they speak about me. So, Jesus talks about, this is what has happened. And he starts to explain to them what's, what's come out of that Old Testament Scriptures that starts to point to him. And then he moves to the present, verses 46 to 48. This is what is written in those Scriptures. The Christ, the Messiah, will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So he goes on then to note how how he has already fulfilled some of those Old Testament pictures. How the main message of the Old Testament ultimately pointed to something they had just lived through. In fact, they were continuing to live through. They were eyewitnesses to his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. And now he shows them the prophecies of all these things. And now all that Jesus has taught them begins to fall into place. It begins to make sense. All the miracles, all the healings, all the events of his life, all the parables start to make sense, but only in the light of Easter. It may seem just common sense, but we have to remember at times every gospel in the New Testament was written on the other side of Easter, after Easter. None of them is just a reprinting of a disciple's notes that he was taking while learning from Jesus or or tape-recorded events of Jesus' life. If they were, the gospels would be very confusing histories because they would be missing the key ingredient. Every incident, every quotation, every parable that appears in the Bible, in the New Testament, was chosen because Easter shed light on it. Because Easter gave it meaning. Every gospel is written from a post-Easter perspective. If not, they would certainly be misnamed. We wouldn't call them gospel good news. 
So Jesus gives the disciples a post-Easter perspective to help them understand all that they have seen and heard, which would be very important for the future. Back up to verse 47 again. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. So we've talked about those as, as those are present events that the disciples are living out right now, but there's also a future element to them. They're not only descriptive of what was happening, but they are also prescriptive of what they were supposed to do. Not only does Jesus foretell what would happen, but he was actually giving them a vision statement and goals for the future. This is the church's vision statement and goals. What is it? Preach repentance and forgiveness of sins to all nations, beginning with the Jews. Be witnesses of these things. Note that a witness, by definition, is not just some, someone who sees events, but someone who tells of them. An eyewitness is someone who not only sees what's happening, that's the eye part of it, but the witness part is the telling, telling to others. That's their job description. If they've just seen but they don't tell, they're not fulfilling their job description. And then thirdly, their job description is to carry on Jesus' mission with the power of the Holy Spirit, which will be given them at Pentecost. And of course, these words are for us as well. We are Jesus' disciples, not the original ones, but we are Jesus' disciples. That, that uh, eyewitness account that was passed down like a, sort of like passing a baton in a race, and it's passed down now to us, and now it's our job. We've taken the baton. And so this is our job description. Based on our understanding of the life of Jesus, we are to preach repentance and forgiveness of sins. We are to be witnesses of all of these things, and we are to carry on Jesus' mission with the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, Easter is important not only for our salvation, but also for an understanding of who Jesus Christ is, what it means to bear the name Christian, what it means to be a disciple. A lot of us in this church have lived through false messiahs. We can even put names and pictures to them. Jim Jones of Jonestown, David Korash of Waco, Texas. Without Easter, Jesus is just another Jim Jones or David Korash. A megalomaniac who made audacious claims but in dying proved them false, not true. Without Easter, we are no better than followers of such charlatans, drinking the Kool-Aid, fooled by a false Messiah and wasting our lives by following him. But, as we were reminded on Easter Sunday, as Paul says, if Jesus has not been raised, our faith and our lives are useless. But because of Easter, 
Jesus is alive. His claims and promises are true. Because of Easter, we carry on his mission today with a true understanding not only of Jesus' life, but of life itself. Praise God that on the other side of Easter is understanding. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for sticking around for 40 days to let your disciples in and the, on the secret, the key of understanding you from the Scriptures. And even though we don't have a, a nice uh, list of things that you point us to, they, as we read the Gospels, as we read the, the various writings of the New Testament, we can begin to see how you were putting things together for them and in a way that made them click and, and now has made them click for us as well. But most of all, we thank you that you did not stay in the grave, but you are a living Savior, proving that your sacrifice on our behalf was accepted by the Father and also promising that we might experience that that eternal life as well. We thank you for this. We praise you for this. We pray that our relationship with you may give us that peace that you shared with those first disciples. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's confess not only that Jesus is alive, but also what that means for us that we now have that job description to serve a risen Savior. We're going to sing together, I serve a risen Savior. The words will be on your screen.